Romans 10, 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray. God, I just ask that you are here this morning with us as we hear from your word. I pray that you bless Pastor Kevin as he speaks to us and that you just uh, move through him to just show us the truth of who you are and what it means to follow you, God. I pray for each of us just to hear what you are uh, saying and, and just be able to apply that to our lives, Father, and see how you are growing us and challenging us. So I just pray that you be with us here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab a seat. Good to see you guys. Hope you guys had a wonderful Easter last week um, and have been enjoying the, uh, the weather change here. It's been a good couple weeks. Uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We're going to be there. We're also going to be in the Old Testament uh, quite a bit this morning as well as we kind of continue to kind of process through um, really what I said to you guys about three or four weeks ago that Romans 9, uh, 10, and 11 are really going to focus in on uh, the nation of Israel and how their relationship to God, uh, according to some, appears to be changing and, and, um, and, and the way that they um, are God's chosen people. And so, um, last week we finished up in Romans chapter 9 uh, and got through the first four verses of Romans chapter 10. And uh, Romans 9 finishes um, by answering this question, which is, hey, has God... Uh, messed up or failed in his promises uh, to save and call the nation of Israel his people. That's basically the question that was posited at the beginning of uh, Romans chapter 9. Is, hey, has God forgotten Israel? Does God still care about Israel? If we read the Old Testament, we see consistently over and over this theme that, that Israel is God's chosen people. They're a chosen race called out for uh, by God uh, as, a, as, a, as a people. And so when we then get to Romans chapter 9, and Paul has said in, in Romans chapter 8 that that God has uh, predestined and ordained and justified and called uh, and, and, and glorified those that know him, the, the question that then came then, well, wait a minute, why isn't the nation of Israel responding to Jesus as the promised Messiah? What, what is the, the hang-up? And if you look at Romans chapter 9, verse 6, right, we saw that, that Paul says this, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And so what Paul has said is, look, I, I get that my brothers and sisters in Christ 
have not all responded to Jesus as the Messiah. I get it. As a matter of fact, in those first five verses of chapter 9, you see Paul's heart for them, that he, he's weeping internally and exclaiming to God that he would surrender his own relationship with Jesus and his own salvation if it meant that his kinsmen would come to know Jesus as Lord. That's the level of depth of care he has for them. And yet he says, it's important to distinguish that racial ties in the bloodline as an Israelite did not dictate whether someone was really a follower of Christ or not. Therefore, Israel's rejection is not God's word failing to be true, far from it, but it actually is an indicator of those who are really followers of God and in Christ or not. And he proved this by pointing out the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and said that God's sovereign choice has been consistently displayed throughout the scriptures, that God chose Abraham, that God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael, and that God chose Jacob instead of Esau, and that indicates to us that God declares mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he declares who he will not show mercy to whom he will not show mercy. And Paul anticipated, right, some pushback on that, and he basically kind of says, well, wait a minute, you don't have any problem when God chooses to show mercy to some, but not to Pharaoh. You didn't have any problem when the enemies of Israel were not shown mercy, but you have a problem when you yourselves are not shown mercy. And he says, God has worked on the basis of his grace and mercy from the beginning. That it was never culturally, if you were born in the line of Israel, that you were saved, but it was whether you truly trusted in him and whether God had bestowed his mercy upon you. And here's the, the, the great thing, right, because what we're talking about at this point is God's grace. God's grace in showing sinful men and women mercy when they don't deserve it. And so the true vision for God's grace, even back in the Old Testament, wasn't just reserved for the nation of Israel. It was for all people. Right? God had promised through prophets over the course of time that I will save not just the nation of Israel, but all people. That they will know my name and it will be written on their heart who I am and they will follow me and I will be their God. And Gentiles now, at this point in time when Paul is writing this letter to Rome, Gentiles are now coming to know the God of the universe because of Jesus. For the first time in human history, those that did not know who Yahweh was are now worshiping him and worshiping his son who died on the cross for their sins. And Israel, meanwhile, has rejected him. And the question is kind of like, how? They were privileged in every way. How in the world could Israel, who had the Old Testament law, who had the prophets, who had the, the, the fathers of the faith, who had all the, 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 the words of God and the temple worship and all these things, and they had seen God's mercy on them for generations, how in the world could they, who were so privileged, possibly deny who Jesus was? 
And what we saw last week, right, and this is what we focused in on last week, is that Israel's struggle had three parts, and that their issues are often the issues that any human being struggles with in regards to their relationship with God. Right, number one was this. That Israel, although zealous for God and knowing many things intellectually about him, was ignorant to the righteousness of God. And what I mean by that is they knew, they knew a lot of things about God, but they didn't know how God had established the way in which we might be saved. They were ignorant to the fact that God chooses to save, and it is completely upon his grace and mercy that anyone ever spends eternity with him. That they were zealous for religion, but not zealous for God because they weren't accepting and following him based upon the way that God had revealed himself to them. They were ignorant to it. Right, and some of this was their fault, some of this was the religious leader's fault, but a lot of it was just their own willful stubbornness to see what God was saying. And Paul says, because of this ignorance, and I said last week that I see a ton, uh, constantly all the time, since I've moved to the South about six or seven years ago, the amount of um, cultural relations that I see or similarities I see between the South and living in the South in the United States and religious Israel is astounding to me. Even, even amongst like the hangover of the Bible Belt that we see in the South, the, the, there's a oftentimes a religious zeal for God, a basic knowledge for God in the South, but there's no real submission to him in the way that he's proclaimed himself to be in the scriptures. And so there's this willful ignorance from the nation of Israel to know about God, but not to submit to him as he's revealed himself. Sound familiar? I see it all around me. The, the one interesting thing about living closer to the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic is the rejection of God there was more of just one of like, we don't know. We're two or three generations removed away from attending church or knowing anything about God. Tell me about him. I don't know anything about him. When you get to the South, everyone assumes they're saved. Right? Oh, I grew up going to church or my grandma went to church or whatever else. And there's just this willful ignorance that everything is assumed here. And it was the same in Israel. Well, I, I, I can trace my lineage back through the line of Levi. Or I can trace it back through the, the, the line of Isaac or Jacob. I can, tra I can trace my lineage all the way back to Abraham. Therefore, I'm good because I'm an Israelite. And Paul's like, that's not how this works. Right? It's, it's based upon the sovereign grace of God and mercy being bestowed upon whom he wills. Now, not only were they ignorant to this righteousness of God that is seen even throughout the Old Testament, but on top of that, they sought to establish their own righteousness instead of submitting to the righteousness of God. And what I mean by that is what they did is they had a zeal for the law, but they lacked the understanding of why the law exists. And so instead of seeing the law of Moses and saying, that is given to us to, to, to share with us how we're supposed to live in light of knowing God, but knowing fully that we can never fully keep the law and fully perform it. I'm going to do it. I've got this. I'm going to do me. And there's like 365 some odd laws within the Old Testament, so good luck following them all. Right? Just a basic study of the, new, the, the Ten Commandments would pretty quickly reveal to us, if we hold the standard, at least the one which Christ shows in the Sermon on the Mount, that none of us can follow any of them. But Israel's like, well, we know the law really, really well, and we can do this trying 
to earn God's favor on their own instead of submitting to his blessing. And what inevitably ended up happening is then when Jesus comes along and preaches the Sermon on the Mount and and tries to reveal to them the depth of their wickedness and how someone really can come to know God and to know the depths of his grace and his mercy towards the human race, they will not subject themselves to him because they've become self-righteous and self-centered. And in seeking to establish a righteousness of their own, they reject the righteousness of God. When faced with the reality that they could not earn God's favor through performance, they still pushed back and denied the Messiah. And so Paul moves into chapter 10 by saying, look, it doesn't have to be this way. Israel, it doesn't have to be this way. He he wishes and, and begs that they would repent of sin and turn to Jesus as the Son of God. But here's the reality, and this is what I said last week, and this is the issue that so many of us have with the gospel. Right? Many of us, because we we grew up in the South, most of you guys in this room grew up in this culture, you intellectually have heard the gospel declared at some point in your life. Very rarely am I up here on a Sunday morning explaining the good news of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and you've never heard that story before. But the issue often is surrounded around this. Not knowing that story, but submitting to that story. And submitting to that story on God's terms, not your terms. See, this is what we fail to understand about God. That he doesn't operate within our sphere of influence. That God does not beg us for an audience. It's not like God was sit, you know, sitting down this week and sitting outside my office door and said, Kevin, I really hope that this is how you preach this weekend. Kevin, I, I really am, am hoping that you might take some of my suggestions in my word and share them with everybody. Now, the way that God operates is that he doesn't need our approval before acting. He doesn't need our defense Because he's the sovereign ruler and creator of the world. And so when God therefore reveals to us who he is and how he has acted on our behalf, it is our responsibility to submit to that, not try to explain it away. And so if we see in chapter 9 that the overarching theme of salvation and who our God is even on the most foundational level is that he is sovereign and that we can come to be adopted children of God but we do it on his terms, then what we're going to see this morning in verses 5 through 13 of chapter 10 is that if we submit to him, these are the terms of salvation. And he's going to share them with us this morning. That we have to submit to God's sovereign terms of salvation. Look at verse 5 with me in Romans chapter 10. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. All right, so let, let's just stop there because otherwise we'll get confused if we try to like move forward too quickly. And I want, I want us to, to pause and think about what 
Paul is saying here in regards to Moses. Okay, so here in verse 5, you basically have Paul giving a hypothetical statement. Saying, if someone could follow the law and do it perfectly, everything that Moses wrote, then they would be saved. If that was possible, here is what it would look like. It would look like perfectly following the laws written down in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. That's, that's what life would look like. Now, he has just got done saying in verse 4, remember this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul is not contradicting himself. He's throwing out a hypothetical statement saying, look, if you could possibly get to God based upon your own merit and performance, it would involve you perf perfectly following everything that Moses wrote in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But the reality is that this is not how we're saved. Hi hypothetically, right, if we look at this, Moses appears to be teaching moralism. Right, go with me to Leviticus chapter 18. Okay, I want us to look at verses 1 through 5 of Leviticus chapter 18. It says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, and notice this line, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Basically saying, if someone perfectly follows my statutes, you will live. That's the, 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 the law being laid down by God to Moses. If you live this way, it will go well for you. The problem is, and here's the reality, we can't. Think about Israel. Don't, like, I, like the, following the Israelites throughout, even just the first five books of the Bible is just fascinating. Think about the number of times God would show up, show mercy to them, do something, and then how quickly they would just move away from that. Right, the reality is, is if verse 5 of Leviticus 8, chapter 18 is true, you and I, we're in trouble. Because if we have to live by the law and follow it in order to live, guess what? We're screwed. Israel couldn't do it. And you and I cannot do it. Israel didn't do it. The religious leaders didn't do it. And neither do you and I. And at the end of our days, if you and I want to come to God with our own lives and lay them down before him and say, look, here, here's, here's what I've done. Here's how I've lived. I've, uh, I've done pretty well. And here's the reality. There are some of you guys in here that live what we would consider to be morally good lives in the here and now in relation to those around you. You, know, you may not drink, you may not sleep around, you make good decisions, you, know, you work hard, you try to love people well. But in regards to keeping the law as God lays down in Leviticus chapter 18, none of us are able to do so. God's standard is perfect obedience and no one meets that. And so he throws out right, this quote from Leviticus 18 from Moses saying, 
if you want to earn God's favor on your own merit, on your own merit apart from Christ, here's what has to be done. Follow the law of God perfectly. Because that's the standard that God laid out all the way back to Moses in Leviticus 18. But, look at verses 6 through 8. Back over in Romans chapter 10. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Okay, so Paul just said, hypothetically, if you want to earn God's favor, here's what you need to do. There are two options. Right, technically, to get to God, there are two options. One is perfect obedience to the law, which none of us are, can do. The second one is this. The righteousness based on faith. And here's what it says. Right now, he, he's going to say, this is the better way. Right, the righteousness based on faith is the better way. And he's going to be quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. So if you want to turn over to there with me, that's where we're going to be for the next few minutes. He's going to be quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30. And if you look in your Bible at what the, the title heading of that chapter is, it's called Repentance and Forgiveness. And here, here is what Paul is going to be saying. He's only going to quote verse 14 in Deuteronomy chapter 30, but the, the theme of verses 1 through 14 are going to be littered throughout just the three verses that Paul shares here. And so I want to break those down a little bit for us. Because, he's gonna, because we need to understand what's going on in Deuteronomy chapter 30 if we're going to properly understand what Paul is trying to say here. Okay, so in verses 1 and 2 of Deuteronomy chapter 30, look at what he says. He says, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. So here's, here's what he's saying. Right? There, there are curses for straying from God, but there will also be mercy extended. Right? That for not following him, right, here's what's going to happen, but there's going to be grace and mercy extended to the next generation in repentance and returning to God. Now, when he gets to verse 6, right, look at what he says. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offsprings so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So here you have, right, God saying you need to live a certain way. And when you don't, there will be cursing, curses brought upon you. But then there can be repentance and returning. And what God is going to do in the midst of that is here is his promise. He is going to circumcise, which was a sign of the covenant of God with the nation of Israel showing who you were, that you belonged to God, and it was no longer going to be external, but it was going to be internal on the heart. That God was going to display internally inside of us that we belong to him. And he's saying to Israel, I'm going to display as a promise internally, and I'm going to place my word on your heart. And then when you get to verses 11 through 14, look at what he says. For this commandment 
that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. So you can't be referring to the law there. Because the, the law has already come. How could it be far off or even close? It's already there. But he's also talking about the yoke of it being light, meaning he's got to be referring to something else other than the Old Testament law because the yoke of the Old Testament law is burdensome. Anybody in here interested in keeping the 300 plus laws of the Old Testament perfectly? I didn't think so. And so if the burden is light and is not far off, look at what he says next. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us? that we may hear it and do it. Neither, it is beyond, neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Okay, verses 11 through 14, right? Anybody confused? Okay, a few, at least Paul's honest. Thank you, Paul. Okay, here is why Paul is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30. He's saying, look, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 30 and you think God is talking about the Old Testament law as a way to salvation that's easy to follow, you are missing what he's saying. He's promising Christ. He's promising Jesus. Look, look at what he says. The word is near you. What does John call Jesus in John chapter 1? The word. And look at, look at, let's, let's keep going, Right? He says, the word is near, near to you. To get to God, to, to, to know him, you don't need to climb into the heavens. Why? Because God came down to you in Christ. Right? There's not some feat of strength or work you need to do to be able to climb and perform to get to heavens. Right? You don't need to climb to the, to the heavens because God came down to you. Right, if you say, well, wait a minute, God came down to us, but there's still my sin. Right, and if you go back to, to Romans chapter 10, he uses the word abyss there because the translation can be a little funky with words, right? In Deuteronomy, they use the word ocean, but it's basically this idea of going down into the depths. Right, meaning, well, wait a minute, who's going to pay the penalty for my sin then? Right, God may have come down, but what about the penalty of my sin? There's no need to die for your sin. Christ did that for you. And if you look closely in Romans chapter 10, look at what Paul says with that. Do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, right? He's quoting verse 12 from Deuteronomy chapter 30. Just not in, in death. That is to bring Christ down. See what he's saying? It's like Christ has already come down to you. You don't need to go up to him. And he says in the next part, or who will descend into the, uh, the abyss, that is to bring Christ up for the dead, saying, look, you don't need to go down into the depths of hell and pay the price for your sin. God has already been raised from the dead on your behalf. And look what he says in verse eight. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, faith in Christ. The word is near you. It is the gospel. There is no other way to God than him. 
He is the way and he is near. Something greater than the law was promised. And in him, our hearts are circumcised. And the promise of Deuteronomy chapter 30, the yoke and the burden is light. The requirement of keeping the law was something you or I could never do, yet God did in sending Jesus on our behalf. And what this means is that there's no need to be wrapped up in the trappings of religion with a sprinkle of Jesus. This means that there's no need for a pilgrimage to Mecca or to go to special cathedrals. That there's no need to become enlightened so that you might reach nirvana. No. What it means is that what man could not do, God did. And it was done in Jesus Christ. He came near to us and drew near to us so that we might know the Father. And in that, the law was kept Sin was paid for, and heaven might be scaled and, it, and reached because of him. He is the way. And part of the, the, the issue that Paul is attacking here is that many of us can know that intellectually, but very rarely will we accept the full weight and theology of that. And so he's just got done saying, look, uh, all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God has promised to do what Jesus did. He's promised it. Now look, look, when you get to verse 9, look at what he says. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. All, all you need for life and godliness, all you need to be adopted as a son of God is that you would confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that Jesus is who he said he was and salvation will come to you. You will be saved. That's, that's it. That's the requirements. There's not a bunch of rules to follow. There's not a pilgrimage to make. There's not some Passover meal to observe. There's not uh, an observance of the Ten Commandments. There's not voting a certain way politically. There's not having a certain number of kids. All these different things that we create within our little pop culture of Christian society, unless it's the gospel, it's not necessary for salvation. Now, we need to clarify verse 9 because some people get confused when they start reading that and they start thinking, well, that's a work. Right, you know, conf confession with my mouth and believing, that's, that's a work. And isn't salvation based apart from works? Let me just say this. Right, first, first and foremost, right, when you, when you look at verse 9, verse 9 is a rehash of what you see in verses 6 and 7 in Romans chapter 10. It's just a different way of putting it out there. But, but what Paul is saying, he says, okay, starting with this, right, confess with your mouth. That's the Greek word homo logeo, right? And some of you guys know what homo means same. And logeo is a root of the word logos, which means word. So same word, to say the same word. 
right? So what Paul is saying there is that what you confess or what you're saying with your mouth is that you believe the same things about Jesus that he said about himself. That you are affirming the personhood of Jesus. That you believe that he's God's only son. That you believe in his authority. And, and let me stop there because that is super important. I see a lot of people that want to confess Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. And remember what I said earlier, that when we come to know God, Israel's problem was that they were ignorant to the righteousness of God. And the righteousness of God is based on our submission to Jesus as Lord, not just Savior. That Jesus is your Savior, but he is also your King. And in our 2018 uh, over-personalized, free-spirit, individualized expression of Jesus, what happens is, is the lordship of Jesus is often reduced to him being more like your best friend who pals around with you and plays video games with you. And like, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is God's own son in the flesh who was there from the beginning, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's not just, right, a cool moral teacher that died for your sins. Because guess what? If he's just a guy and a good teacher, his payment's not sufficient for you. And therefore, to submit to Jesus is not to just submit to some teachings about him. is to submit to his lordship. Because he is God and king. Now... So, so Paul's saying, look, you know, following Christ is a submission to the lordship of Christ, but it's also this. It's believing in your heart, meaning this, you're trusting in the work of Jesus and its sufficiency. Right, because one of, when we tend to have issues with the gospel, we tend to reject one of these two things that Paul mentions here. We either reject the lordship of Christ and don't submit to him, or we fail to believe in the sufficiency of what Jesus has done. That all of our problems, with the gospel at least, are wrapped up in those two things. Either Jesus is not Lord, or Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not sufficient enough for us. And what Paul is saying is that you are trusting, by believing in your heart, you are trusting in the finished work of Jesus, meaning you believe that he came, you believe that he died for your sins, you believe that he gave up his righteousness and gave it and extended it to you, and then God raised him again from death to life to show that what he had done was sufficient as the payment for God's wrath for your sin and raised him to new life so that you could be raised to new life. That's what you're believing in, but here's the kicker. You're not just believing in the veracity of that as a historical fact, but you also view it as being sufficient for you day by day, minute by minute, hour by hour. Meaning, when you are struggling and in the depths of despair, you are still purchased for, bought with, and loved because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that nothing can rob your joy because what Christ has done is sufficient for you. A lot of us aren't going to struggle with the historical facts. Yeah, Jesus lived. Yeah, yeah, he died. Yeah, I even believe he was raised from the dead. You know, why would 12 guys who were complete cowards before, 
before the crucifixion all of a sudden be willing to die for him afterwards and claim to be eyewitnesses. The fact that people don't believe in the resurrection is just like astounding to me. You have a group of people who have recorded in human history that they were cowards and then were then willing to die for the same, for the, for the same God that they, they claimed to have seen raised from the dead. I don't know about you guys. I'm not willing to die for a lie. Especially if I know it's a lie. And they would have. And here you have Jesus' disciples making this claim. But guess what? The reason they were able to be willing to submit to even death for the sake of the gospel is because they believed in the sufficiency of Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and their adoptions as sons and daughters of God. They had seen the power of God in Christ and they believed in it. The work of Jesus was sufficient to save you from all sin, past, present, and future. And that's why the gospel is such good news. And then verse 10 really just reiterates verse 9. All right, look at what he says in verse 10. He says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Right, here's, here's what he's saying. First of all, right, the word righteous and saved, they're synonymous. Okay, so if you're confused that there's a process here, let's just throw, throw that out, right? Because guess what? You can't be declared righteous before God and not be saved. It's impossible. You had a death sentence. If you're declared righteous, guess what? You're safe. And guess what? You can't be saved unless what? You've been declared righteous, because guess what? You're not otherwise. So these two terms, they're synonymous with one another. But look at what he says. Paul is saying less about a, a theological kind of truth or something we need to observe, and he's more so saying this. Belief and faith in Christ is not privatized. Everybody tracking with me there? That belief and following Jesus is not privatized, right? Ever hear this statement, I don't want to talk about this because my faith is personal and private. Ever hear that? It's very, very, very common now in our, our postmodern culture. It's catchy, but it's not true. Especially if you're a Christian. Because Paul says that internal conviction always leads to external profession. That any internal conviction or belief you have will always lead to external profession. And some of you guys are like, I don't believe you. How many of you guys support the Florida Gators in here? About 80% of the room. Of that 80%, you, how many of you believe that you are a Gator and you love them? Yeah, most of you guys would say, I love the Gators, right? It's an internal conviction that they're the greatest team in the universe, even when they're 2 and 10. Right? You love that football team. And here's your external confession. You pay money. You rearrange your schedule to go to games. You cry when Tebow's statue is put out in front of the stadium. You'll cheer for them in the rain. You'll go to their stadium, and I cannot figure out this for the life of me, and I've lived here for almost seven years. You will stand in a 115-degree stadium to cheer that team on in the middle of a hot September afternoon. Because internally, right, you identify with them, you believe in them, and you support them. And guess what? It has led to an external confession for you. 
And what Paul is saying is, look, at any time you have an internal conviction, it always leads to an external profession. Internal conviction in the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is must lead to an external declaration of faith in Christ. If you're unwilling to externally declare that, you don't internally believe it. I, I hate to break that to you. But if you're sitting here right now and you're like, well, I don't really agree. If you are afraid to externally proclaim faith in Christ, you don't really internally believe it. Because Paul has said time and again that this is how it works. Now, now guys, here's the great news. Right, Paul is talking to the nation of Israel here. And I would say, if not 100%, 95% of us plus in here are not culturally Jewish. And Paul is saying that the end of the law for righteousness has come because the terms of salvation by faith have been laid out by believing in the work of Christ and confessing the lordship of Christ. That's it. That in Jesus there's such good news because of what he's done. And look at who it's, to, it's, it's accessible to. He says in verse 11, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Who is this acceptable to, accessible to? Right, in the Old Testament Mosaic Jewish traditional understanding of God, it was reserved for Jews. Or those who would convert and go through a long and lengthy process of submitting themselves as followers of God. But in Christ... Everyone who believes will not be put to shame. Right, he's quoting from Joel chapter 2, verse 32, and he's saying, God does not show partiality. You know, I joke about this all the time. I have no Jewish heritage. I, I joke and say that my ancestors worship Thor or Bark or I don't even, who knows? They were in Northern Europe. So if anyone's done some extensive historical study on Northern Europeans, that's, that's my heritage. They didn't know who God was. And yet, because of Christ, there is now no longer any distinction and all can know the God of the Bible. And not just know him intellectually, which I think is where the hang-up comes, but know him as Lord, as God, as King, and as Father in a loving, adopted relationship with him. Here's my prayer for us, guys. That we would love Jesus. We wouldn't love the idea of Jesus, that we wouldn't love the theology of Jesus, that we would love him. Because he 
is the one who submitted himself, put on human flesh, as Philippians chapter 2 says, and then further submitted himself to death, death on a cross, so that our sins might be paid for. So the wrath of God would be satisfied. That Jesus came down from heaven, God's own son, because we couldn't get to him on our own. That we might worship him. Guys, I mean really worship him by believing in who he was and what he did and believing in the sufficiency of it. And then out of that belief, we would confess and that our profession of faith in him might be declared in Gainesville. It might be declared in the entire state of Florida, across the United States, and in the whole world. And that God might grant us the ability to follow and know him with grace and with power. When God is satisfying to you, he looks satisfying to the world around you. He's good, guys. I don't know what words I can use. I don't know how else to say it. He is worthy. Like that song we sang earlier, He is worthy a thousand generations, singing worthy Lord of all. That's who we're talking about here. And there is no other way except through Him. In a moment, we're going to take communion do it every week here. Right? And what we're doing when we take communion is we are performing an act of worship. Right? When I grew up, right, we would take communion once a month in my particular religious tradition. Right? I always thought the communion was supposed to be this act of contrition where I was just like openly kind of like wailing over my sin and then I would come up there and take it just like sorrowful and, and mourning over how wicked of a person I was. Here's the reality. Right? Taking communion is an act of worship because what God has done is pour out the flesh and blood of his only son so that you might be forgiven and know him and be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. And taking communion is an act of worship and praise unto him saying, God, I recognize that you're my only way to the Father and I am so thankful for what you did on the cross and in your life, death, burial, and resurrection so I can worship you. And I'm not going to sit here wallowing in my sin because I tend to wallow in my sin because I'm mad that I can't earn my way to you. And I'm not upset that I can't earn my way for you to, to you because that's just the reality of the situation. And instead, I'm going to be thankful that you have made a way and I'm going to take communion rejoicing in what you have done. And so if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, if you have not confessed with your mouth believing in the, in the personhood of Jesus or believed in your heart and the work of Christ being sufficient for your salvation, I would ask that you not take communion because the reality is, is it doesn't mean anything to you. I'm not trying to rob you of some religious or community experience, but it doesn't mean the same thing for you. And as a matter of fact, God's word says that you're storing up wrath for yourself if you partake in communion and haven't believed. But if you are a Christian here this morning, 
I would highly encourage you to come up here and take communion, that you would confess your sin, thank God for the fact that when that sin is confessed, you already know that forgiveness waits there for you, and then come up joyfully taking communion because that was purchased by Christ. And then we're going to sing songs about Him because He is worthy. And then we're going to leave here today not thinking about how great we are or how great our church is or how amazing it is to be an American or anything else. We're going to extol and, and proclaim the name of Jesus because all of this is possible because of Him. I don't want you to leave here this morning wanting anything other than Him because only in Him will you be satisfied. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I lack the words and the vocabulary to express the richness of your grace and the magnitude of your power and goodness. I do. I sit here right now, even as I pray to you, wanting to proclaim proudly how good you are. And I lack the words. But you are good. Father, I pray if there's anybody in here this morning who does not know that of you, that you might save them. That they would repent of sin and place their faith and their trust in you. And Father, for those in here this morning that do know you, that they will be reminded again anew each and every day of the freshness and the riches of your grace towards them in Christ. That they would know that your mercies are new each and every day because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And Lord, for as long as we are on this earth, give us the grace and the conviction to continue to believe in the sufficiency of what you have done for us so we might rejoice in you and forever confess and proclaim the goodness of who your son is so that the world around us might know and see the glories of your grace to us. Father, thank you this is all, that all of this is possible to be here this morning worshiping and, and proclaiming the goodness of your name because of your son and what he's done for us. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys.